Good morning. This is Radio Three. Now Carol Mann presents Part Six of our lecture series, My Matters. Good morning, and welcome once again to Mind Matters, our series of abridged talks and lectures. I'm Carol May. Within China, the languages spoken on the streets are often not the national language Mandarin, but rather one of the country's many Fangyan local languages, such as Shanghainese or Cantonese, or dozens of others. Today, we'll be going into the long history of languages in China in this lecture held recently by the NGO Safe Cantonese. Dr. Gina and Tam from Trinity University in the U.S. argues that Fangyan are rarely thought of as distinct languages in their own right. Instead, they are most often termed dialect of Chinese, despite the fact that many are linguistically quite distinct from one another, and of course Mandarin. Listen now to the public lecture. Is Cantonese a dialect or a language? This is a story that my guess many people in the audience have heard quite frequently.、Um, in in the context of my research, this is the story that, in particular, when I spent a lot of time in in Guangzhou and Hong Kong, people loved to tell me this story. Right. So the story often goes something like this. Um, in the early 20th century, the Republic of China had just been founded and was struggling to get its bearings. The republic had replaced a 300-year-old dynasty, which had slowly crumbled in the face of domestic turmoil and multiple de- multiple defeats in foreign wars. As revolutionaries turned state builders struggled to make a Chinese nation from dream to reality, they hotly debated what actually made a nation powerful, and they decided that a unified national language was really important in signaling the country's strength and sovereignty.、Um, there was this conference. To choose the national language, people came from all over China,、um, and then people voted, and Beijing barely won to serve as the nation's linguistic representative.、Um, the reason this comes up a lot is that Cantonese speakers really, really love to say that they and and I would like to point out that it's overwhelmingly it's Cantonese speakers that like to say we lost by two votes or three votes or four votes. Number of votes tends to change.、Um, I've heard this from speakers of other languages too.、Um, Overwhelmingly, though, this is this is a popular Cantonese story, right?、Um, so, like any good historical story, this one's a mix of historical events laced with strategic mythmaking.、Um, so, I'm I'm really I don't want to be the person to tell you all that that like this is this is untrue. The fact is, I don't know if it's true.、Um, I am going to talk pretty extensively about a conference where they determine a national standard. Um, and that is not exactly what happened. Right, Cantonese didn't lose, so to speak.、Um, there were other conferences. People may not have written it down. I don't know.、Um, I may have have never found this trove of documents about it.、Um, but to the best of my knowledge, I don't have good evidence that there was a vote between like Beijing pronunciation and Cantonese pronunciation. Okay.、Um, another part is so it, because it's often this 1913 conference that often comes to people's mind. Um, I, I think one of the other sort of things that's that's interesting about this is that、um, when the the result of that conference was actually not the Mandarin that we speak today,、um, it is or that some of us speak today, right? It is it was actually a different national language that they that they landed on at the end of this conference that they would then abandon about a decade and a half later.、Um, 
But what I actually find most misleading about this particular story that it was this sort of like who's fun, who's phoning do we choose, right? Is that I, it, it makes it seem like this was a contentious process because everyone just wanted their own language to be the national language. And that the operative question was always which region's language gets to win. And that because we were simply picking one language to serve as the national language, we were already creating a hierarchy, right? That creates a hierarchy. There's one winner and a bunch of losers, right? But if we look at how they're thinking about this in the early 20th century and how China's first national language was founded, we find that that's not how they were thinking about this process, right? Really, the operative question for them was much less which existing Fangyu language do we choose to be the standard and much more, what does it mean for a language to represent a nation? Um, and there were a few men who articulated this thinking better than this man, um, Zhang Bingli. He's also called Zhang Taiyan. Um, he's, he's difficult for scholars to study, um, because his work is often full of contradictions. Uh, but one consistent position for, with, for which he became quite well known was the idea that China's new nation had to be of and for ethnic Han Chinese people. In particular, he, uh, very strongly was against the political power held by the Manchurian ruling class of China's Qing dynasty. Now, while he argued this in a number of venues, using a lot of variety of evidence to support his contention, there was one work that indirectly tied this argument to language, and it was called, um, it would, it could either be, uh, Song Feng Yu or, or New Dialect or New Feng Yu, however you want to translate this, right? Um, and this was published over um, a few years as a series of articles. Um, and um, over the course of a few years, this was this published as a series of articles. And the idea was to trace for the origins of of Chinese of the Chinese language um, by tracing the etymology of several hundred regional phrases back to texts from a couple of thousand years ago. Um, but as he makes clear in his introduction, and other contributors argue even more clearly in sort of like forwards and afterwards of this of this published book. Um, that Zhang's work rested on the presumption that all Chinese languages, um, in particular, we're talking about like Hanyu Fangyan, right? Like, like, um, Chinese, like, like Chinese being Hanyu here, right? Um, Fangyu from there, um, that they all emanated from one shared language and that they were evidenced of an idealized antiquity that began with the civilizational origins of the Han people. Um, relatedly, he sought to prove that his contention um, proving contention that while all Fangyim had a shared connection to this core, some preserved it better than others and therefore had a closer connection to the lineage of the Han people. Now, he doesn't explicitly state this in, in New Dialect here, um, but it seems clear that um, it informed John's prescription for a Chinese national language. He believes that it should be a constructed language that embodied sort of the shared historical core um, that all, um, Hanyu languages share, right? Hanyu, yeah, Hanyu Fangyim shared, right? Um, such a construction, of course, would need a base language upon which it would be built. Um, and guided by his anti-Manchu politics, he was very, very strongly opposed, um, to Beijing Fangyin because he argued that Northern Fangyin were not purely Chinese anymore. Um, for some people, this is also a common story or, um, um, thing that likes to be told about Cantonese, right, is that that northern languages are sort of less Chinese. Um, and Zhang believed that very strongly. <laughs> um, and in fact, there's um, 
it's this is a, this is a really widespread narrative in the early 20th century. Um, but a lot of people who like to say it in the early 20th century often quote him, right? Like, um, um, they they find him a kind of authority on this that 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 lives with their contention that northern languages are sort of less Chinese. Okay. Um, so instead, he suggested that the Chinese national language be based loosely off of the language spoken in the center of China. He called it the, the, the language of the states of Chu and Han, which gets into his sort of ideas about antiquity um, that we don't have to get into here. But um, it, it's it's related to his ideas about antiquity. Now, after the 1911 revolution, um, proposals like Zhang seemed quite attuned to the needs of the new nation, as many saw the capital as too closely tied to the fallen Qing dynasty. A lot of our revolutionaries are from the South um, and therefore really had had similar kinds of vitriol um, towards not just the Manchus, but also just sort of northern people in general. Right. Um, and his ideas attracted prominent supporters, including many members of that conference convened in 1913 to determine the pronunciation of the Chinese national language. Um, this isn't actually that. I couldn't find a picture of that actual conference. This is a different conference, right? Um, but you have about like 80 people coming together to try and decide what the national language should be. And they don't really vote what they do. Again, this is to the best of our knowledge. We don't have a ton of documentation here, right? But to the best of our knowledge, um, what they do is they, tr they all sort of write down how they think a list of characters should be pronounced. Now, there is a camp at this conference that thinks that because Japan and France and other countries tend to choose the language of their capital, um, that China should do the same. Um, and that at this point, the capital is Beijing, right? And so therefore, they should just choose Beijing's language. But then you also have sort of this southern camp, and they're not necessarily say, a lot of them are from like Jiangsu. They're from different areas around China. Um, and they're not so much saying like, it should be like Jiangsu Hua or should be Cantonese or these kinds of things. They're more saying that like, Cantonese or Southern Fangyu, Southern languages have particular characteristics that are lost in Northern languages. And therefore, our new language should really reflect that, right? It should look more like a Southern language than like a Northern language. Okay. Um, so they have this really contentious meeting. And what they end up with is a language that is about 80 to 90% similar to the phonology of Beijing, but it's still a constructed language with the remaining 10 to 20% of its phonology comprised of characteristics taken from other Fongyim, including in particular, um, as I'm sure a lot of people here who are Cantonese speakers know that Cantonese has stop endings, right? Like the Ks and the Ts at the end of words. Um, that is particular to a lot of, not all Southern Fongyim, but a lot of them. Um, and that, that gets included into this new language, those distinctions. Now, why did they do this? The key reason is that for many of these first constructions of the Chinese language, they did not believe that one particular Chinese language had the ability to represent the nation in its entirety. They, they, they've rejected this idea that picking one would be okay, right? They, they understood that this was a, a process of creating one winner and many losers. And they didn't think that that was a good way to represent the nation. Okay. Um, but this, um, but, and so again, there were some who wanted to do that, but they, but those were sort of like met with fierce opposition. Um, and so in other words, in sort of creating this national language, the majority of the men here, and as far as I know, they were all men, um, that, um, 
They believe that a language that at once represented the nation's present while also embodying its shared past had to be something that they created. And in this vision, Fongim, right, were not branches or subsidiary versions of, of, of this ideal Chineseness. They were rather different pieces of a puzzle without which the full picture of the nation would be woefully incomplete. And so in 1913, we have our first Chinese national language, a new invention for a new nation. Sorry, we'll get there in a second. But after a few years, this national language, seemingly born of this idealism, managed to make a lot of people frustrated, right? Um, for those who had the, to do the work of teaching it, of promulgating it, of making it a national language, um, saw its shortcomings, casting doubt on the feasibility of enforcing a language that had very few, if any, native speakers got made fun of a lot. Um, and even those who are really on board with it began to slowly doubt its practicality after a few years. Take this man, Zhao Yanren. We could talk about him all day. He's my favorite person. Uh, he is a graduate of Cornell and Harvard and was so committed to this hybridized national language that he made a recording of it in 1921. But by 1924, he was quietly telling friends and family that he believed that the national language should be pure Beijing Fangyan, leading him in 1925 to join several other reformers to formally propose that. Later in life, um, he explained that the original hybrid sort of like created language was just never going to succeed because it was impossible to promulgate, right? Reflecting on it, he laughed. For 13 years, I was the sole speaker of this idiolect meant to be the national language of 600 million people. Okay. So in 1925, the language of Beijing is sort of determined by this group that was tasked by the Department of Education um, to be uh, the national language. And then that's picked up by the, uh, by the, by the woman, by the KMT um, in the uh, 19, in 1927, after they, they, they take hold of the whole country, right? Um, and, um, this dream of, of creating something that represents the whole nation fades away. Calling the language of Beijing a national language when linguistically, right, it's just another re like language that's spoken in China, right? Um, doesn't immediately make it a language in the eyes of the public and simply calling Fongyim non-national languages doesn't immediately make them subsidiaries or variants. So in order to create that hierarchy that we see really viscerally today, um, state actors and their collaborators tend to convince the general public that their new national language could represent the whole nation. And inversely, the connotations inherent in the word dialect, its presumption of hierarchy and dependency, had to become integral to what a what that term fonim is. So the transformation of the language of Beijing into national language was partly done through public policy. Um, the government decreed that the national language should be taught in schools, encouraged its use in radio, supported magazines like that, not yet, National Language Weekly. And by the 1930s, some of these encouragements became threats. One of the examples that's often given is the example of cinema. Uh, in the 1930s, Chiang Kai-shek's government attempted to censor cinema in other Chinese fonim besides the national language, targeting in particular the thriving Cantonese movie industry in Guangzhou. Listening to Mind Matters, Dr. Gina and Tam told us how Mandarin became the official language of China. Next, she explores the definition of a dialect and tells whether Cantonese is a dialect or a language. 
Linguistics in China underwent a huge transformation in the early decades of the 20th century. Um, it was galvanized in particular by the May 4th movement, a series of protests against Japan's acquisitions um, of Germany's colonies in China, then dovetailed with ongoing calls from educated elites for a complete upheaval of China's core cultural institutions. In the midst of this, academics... Um, began to eagerly develop new university programs meant to create modern knowledge about the country and its people. And this translated in the early 1920s um, into an advocacy for a more scientific study of language. Um, so a lot of the men who were who were pushing this had received their doctorates in Europe and the United States and claimed that traditional ways of studying Chinese languages were outdated and unscientific. Um, and they simply felt it was sort of objective truth that all human languages were in this sort of like hierarchical model of like a taxonomic tree. Um, to show you what I mean, I'm going to go ahead and let Professor of English Lin Yutang explain it because he's real clear about it. So there should be no confusion as to the definition of the word fang yan or feng yi. Uh, the world's languages are connected in one system called a yuyan si. Um, so family of languages, language families are then divided into yen or languages. And within each language, there are divisions of feng yin or dialects. We ought to declare that when we speak of feng yin today, that we are using it with the meaning from modern linguistics. So what he's saying is that Chinese languages needed to graft onto a model prescribed by scholars of linguistics in Europe and the United States. And that meant that their methodologies needed to presume that that basically Chinese languages related to one another like this. So this is an old model. This is from the 19th century. This is a German model. But what's important here, right, is that like branches that are longer like here, that is a language. The itty bitty little ones at the end, those are dialects, right? Um, and he believed very strongly, like a lot of men in, in the, at this time, right, that this is the model for understanding Chinese languages. And this is inherently hierarchical. Now, this is not to say that Lin or other dialectologists directly claimed that all Chinese, like, like all of these Chinese phoneme, like Cantonese, derived from Mandarin. They knew that wasn't true, right? But when they go around, on the one hand, exist, insisting that this hierarchical model is objective fact, well, simultaneously, they're also supporting public policy that claims that there's only one national language. It makes it really easy for there to be a slippery slope to just sort of say, well, Cantonese derives from Mandarin, right? Um, again, no, I don't think any linguist would argue that, right? But you can see how that slippage creates that impression. So what's the takeaway here? First, um, the ex expectation in the early 20th century that in order for China to be a nation, it needed to have a national representative language created the broad presumption that there could be only one Chinese language. Second, the creation of a national language that took only one Fengyin, one uh, Chinese language as its standard, created the political will to allow one Chinese language to gain a cultural significance that others didn't have. And third, that cultural and political significance was emphasized through a number of venues. Um, now, at this point, you may be asking yourself, why does this even matter, right? Who cares if Cantonese is called a language? I know a lot of you do, right? But for those who don't, right, why does it matter what we call it, right? To me, the words that we use bound observable things to a series of assumptions, ideas, and cultural touchstones. And as such, they frame our thinking and guide our actions. If we presume that Cantonese has all of the connotation of the word dialect, that is a dialect, and that all other languages like it are dialects, right? Is we force China's diverse linguistic landscape into a hierarchy in which all but one are subordinate. 
Um, and this isn't limited to linguistic structure alone. Ultimately, to speak a language is to grasp and own a particular kind of cultural power. And to speak it in dialect is to settle for an expression of identity that is limited in scope and diminished in its significance. In this way, what counts as a language and what is merely a dialect is a battle in a place over a, a battle over a place in a cultural hierarchy. And this has very material effects too. The political power in speaking a language and having an identity validated affects us in concrete material ways, whether it's through educational resources, um, television programming, um, all of these kinds of things. We just, we throw money at languages in a way that we do not at dialects, just as a global community, right? And we can say that should change. Um, I very strongly believe that should change, right? But in the space that we are now, that's generally how the materiality of language tends to work, right? Uh, when speakers of other Chinese languages cannot learn them at leading global institutions or in their own communities, this not only leads to material discrimination, but it puts people who speak these languages at a deep disadvantage. Language isn't just something we speak, right? It's a, there's a materiality to it, and it translates into cultural and political power. Phonology of languages spoken in China have been recorded for a very long time, overwhelmingly through what we call rhyme tables or rhyme books, which is where you have collections of characters that are sort of like this rhymes with this rhymes with, right? Like, and so they're like, they're categorizations of characters. So you can tell if all of the characters, right, that are pronounced like dung are all there. Like, we know that they're all pronounced the same, even if we don't exactly know how they're pronounced, right? Um, one of the things that are brought up among a lot of Southern Fangyan, um, Cantonese speakers have a lot of, um, ha tend to have a lot more of a, of a voice in written materials. And so this is very heavily emphasized in Cantonese speaking areas. The other is in Hakka speaking areas. Both really like to emphasize that the rhyme tables fit their contemporary languages better than other languages. Um, but to my understanding, there's a lot of consternation about this, um, trying to, and, and I am not a linguist, so I cannot tell you quantifiably which, which ones fit better, right? Um, this also goes for like Tang Dynasty poetry, except for that in general, Southern Fangyan fit better than Northern ones, right? Um, that's just generally true. That has been around for a long time, right? This idea that, that, that canonical texts or important historic texts um, sound better in Southern Fangyan. Um, like during the Qing dynasty, uh, there's one emperor who tried to make everybody speak, um, a Northern language because he was annoyed he couldn't understand his officials. Not everybody, let me rephrase, people who were officials, right? Um, and people in, in, in Guangzhou and in Jiangsu just threw a fit about it because they were like, no, like we're studying all of these texts and our languages fit it better. So why in the world would you tell us to do that? You crazy person, right? I don't think they, they did not say that. That is, that is no, <laughs> nobody said that about the emperor, um, and survived. But in any case, they, they really put up a protest about it. So that's that, that, um, that contention has been around for a while, right? Um, there's been real pride in Southern Fangyan for a long time. Understandably, right? Um, our connections to historic texts matter. I also would like to point out that there are a lot of like Cantonese speakers and speakers of place of, of other sort of, um, Chinese Fangyim. So, um, Fang Xu's book, Silencing Shanghai talks a lot about people who are really worried about losing Shanghainese. Uh, um, it's, it's, it's a really beautiful, sort of um anthro like an ethnography. Uh she she does a lot of interviews about people and linguistic choices. And they don't care much about whether it's called a language or a dialect. They just want it to be preserved, right? Um 
to me, I, I think that that's, that's a, that's a sentiment I don't want to ignore, right? Cause I, I don't want to not give voice to that. Um, but I, I do think that this is why the, these terms help advocacy quite a lot, right? Um, it's just, it's just a lot easier to say that, um, um, this is like this, that's why we should teach it and continue to teach it and these kinds of things. Um, and, and to sort of think about, like immigrant communities, right? Um, one of the reasons China Town has changed very a lot is because immigrant communities have changed quite a lot, right? And so I think the more inclusive we are, the more likely we can create space for that balance, I think, right? I am just one person. <laughs> um, but I, I do sort of think that um the 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 bigger point here, however, um, and this is also something that I'm I'm stealing here from Gerald Roche, um, is that is that like languages don't die um, on their own. I, I One of the things I get told a lot, probably not as much from this audience, but from others, right, is that, well, this is going to happen inevitably, right? Like, I mean, it's just financially, it's better to teach your kid Mandarin. It's like going to make you more money, et cetera. And this is something that's commonly said in Hong Kong, too. Um, and and I, I mean, there's an extent to which I don't want to dismiss the way that I think some people feel sort of really powerless in looking at language rights. Um, but I also think that we ought to not think of it as in the passive or as inevitable, right? Languages don't die. We, as a big collective, we um, make them die, right? And I, again, want to stress that power really matters here, right? There are some people that have significantly more power than others to make die or make live, right? Um, but I think if we think about it in terms of agency, then we can think about the small ways, like this alliance is so powerful. And, and I think the story of how, of like the Welsh revitalization effort is, is really telling here. Um, also, Hakka is another sort of interesting example. Hakka is not easy necessarily to learn, but it is a it is a language and an identity and a history that in part gets a lot of a lot more attention than it might otherwise, because there were some people who really cared about it. Right. Um, so that's um, that's something I would say. Um, OK, um, trying to. um Would Cantonese and other Chinese languages be stronger if we kept using classical Chinese instead of I mean, so I, I'll, I'll sort of, um, um, so the, the question is, would Cantonese and other Chinese languages be stronger if we kept using classical Chinese instead of using Mandarin as the national language? I'm going to actually break this apart a little bit, um, because I, I think it's interesting to talk about script, right? Um, and so, um, there, there's sort of three concurrent national, like language, reform efforts that are happening at the same time. Um, and as Jolosi said, this is a, this is a contentious political topic. Um, but what's fascinating is that actually of the three language reform efforts in the early 20th century, this was the least contentious. Um, because the other two were script reform, right? So what do we do with, with the, the, the actual script? of Chinese. And the other was sort of like written style reform, right? As Which is sort of the classical versus what we normally now write in, which is sort of a vernacularized version of Chinese, right? Those were much more contentious. So I brought up Zhang Taiyan here, and he was really mad about the idea of Beijing's chosen as a national language. But you should have seen him talk when he like wrote about people trying to get rid of characters. Because uh, nothing sort of brought out the vitriol of Zhang than the suggestion that Chinese characters be Romanized, right? Um, and so, I mean, I, I think 
rather than thinking about sort of like Mandarin versus anything else, I think it's that to me where where if we're looking at the root of this hierarchy, it is um, it comes from a space whereby we all decided in the early 20th century that hierarchy was good, normative and modern. Right. Um, in, and, and interestingly, this is something where I think we can give some some agency and perhaps blame uh, to European imperialism because they are getting a lot of these narratives from countries that are invading China and saying, well, you guys aren't modern because you don't have a like standard language. Um, I'm, I'm halfway through, um, um, R.H. Kuang's book, Babel, uh, which is, which is a sort of fantasy sci-fi book, but it is entirely about this question of language, um, and, and translation and empower in the context of European imperialism and one of the things she points out correctly, even though it's a sci-fi book, right, is that this idea of dialect and language and that modern nations have one singular modern language, that is an import, right? It is translated and taken seriously. I don't want to not give agency to Chinese nation builders here, right? But it is it is something that in some ways is, is also like violently imposed as well. So I, I think that it's worth sort of keeping that in mind as well. That was Dr. Gina and Tam from Trinity University. I'm Carol Meng, and I invite you to tune in again next Sunday morning on Mind Matters. Thank you.